And welcome to this microdose from ACFM, the home of the weird left. This is one of those microdoses with the three of us because we were recording the episode on strikes that has just come out in February 2023. And we thought, well, there's so many films about strikes, we'd like to have a chat about them and share our insights. So this microdose today is going to be all about films about strikes. We're starting in the 1920s. So, Jeremy, would you like to kick us off with a film that you've seen? Yeah, sure. So, the 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 first film I know of about a strike is called Strike, or rather, you know, the the Russian title I think is Starka, and it's Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 film. Sergei Eisenstein, uh, the great Soviet filmmaker of the early uh, revolutionary and immediate, of the immediately post-revolutionary period, one of the great uh, pioneers of the montage technique, and his most famous film that will be familiar to people is Battleship Potemkin. Strike like Battleship Potemkin is essentially a it's it's revolutionary Soviet Russia producing the story of its own immediate history. So it's, they were supposed to be part of a sequence of films which told the story of how the how, you know, the history building up to the revolution. Um, so Strike is a dramatisation of a film, of a strike, a factory strike in 1903, which is in the run-up to the 1905 re revolution, which is a sort of precursor to the 1917 revolution in Russia. And like Battleship Potemkin, what it does is it really... It treats cinema as an art form whose whose narrative function and representative function is really completely different from what it becomes in mainstream cinema from the 1930s onwards, really, which is from the 1930s onwards, cinema becomes basically a narrative form whose primary concern is interpersonal relationships and individual experience, I would say. From the, from the beginning of the talkies and with the popularisation of uh, technology techniques like the close-up and the point of the individual point of view shot basically cinema becomes about a kind of extension of the bourgeois literary project of pr producing a vision of the world according to which it is the private experience of individuals and their intimate relationships with each other uh, which is the primary substance the primary concern of narrative art and the thing with Eisenstein is that's not what he's interested in. He's interested in the behaviour of large groups. He's interested in the crowd as the active agent of history. And it's the crowd scenes in Battleship Potemkin, which if you know anything at all about cinema from that period, you might be familiar with. It's the crowd scenes and shots in uh, Strike, which are really compelling. But I think even now, you know, it's a silent film. And it's very different kind of viewing experience to watching a contemporary movie. You know, it's still, it's really, really compelling. It's a really engaging film to watch. And it really does make you think about how you know, cinema can be 
a film which a medium which is about something completely different it is it can be about collective experience and of course it was you know originally cinema had to be watched on screens you couldn't sit at home on your own and watch it because people didn't have screens at homes you watched it in a crowd it is that if and for eisenstein it was, eisenstein's vision of cinema was that it was the medium of the crowd of the radical crowd the, the potent collectivity as i as i like to call it uh, and it's a really fantastic evocation of that. I mean, in some ways, it's the most radical film we're going to talk about today, still, like having been made 100, you know, almost 100 years ago. And is it available to watch? It's probably on YouTube. I mean, I, I've i got a file that I was uh, given that fell off the back of a lorry, but um, <laughs> as we used to say when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, it's easily it's easy to get hold of. But yeah, you're right. It, Eisenstein invents loads of the grammar for for filmmaking i.e. like montage and all that sort of stuff but it's a very very different project uh to hollywood and like so our list goes jump straight to 1951 so it's like a big big period through through the 20s and through the 30s which are times of like big um and the 40s actually yeah big big uh, waves of unionization big strikes and lots of political conflict I mean, we should say, look, we just chucked down a load of films that one of us had seen or that we'd heard of that were about something to do with strikes. This is no way an exhaustive cinematic history. I'm sure there's loads of stuff we've missed out, so don't at us. <laughs> you know, well, do at us and tell us about the ones we've missed out because it'd be interesting. Uh, yeah, we'll tell people, recommend that films, recommend other films. Please do recommend films other listeners could watch. Don't text, don't tweet me saying, I can't believe you missed X. <laughs> believe it, we're going to miss it. But the, but even if you just do a Google, you know, it does seem to be a little bit of a gap, which is a bit odd. But like, you know, in, in some ways, I suppose it's because, well, particularly Hollywood films of that era are escapist films, aren't they? They don't want to be confronted with this the this this militant unionism, I suppose, something like that. I'm not sure. I mean, from the mid-30s onwards until the 60s, really, films about trade unions are not mostly going to be films about strikes and class conflict. They're actually going to be films more or less in sympathy with the project of the New Deal and the welfare state in, in Britain. So they're about workers all pulling together. So... There, there will be plenty of films that have a sort of mild anti-capitalist orientation, but they're not about strikes. They're about, you know, factory girls in the war and this sort of thing. I mean, the next film we've got is Man in the White Suit from 1951. So Eisenstein's film Strike, you know, that is, that is a revolutionary um, regime and a revolutionary artist trying to portray and understand the sort of revolutionary uh, period they were in. By the time we get to 1951, you know, the portrayal of the unions and strikes in, in The Man in the White Suit is completely different because unions in that context, in the UK at that time, they're, they're an established part of, of, of life, basically. And they're incorporated into life. They're incorporated into, into the way that uh, government works, right? You know, the, the head of the unions is invited to number 10 with the head of the, the employers and they, they have to negotiate uh, wage rises linked to productivity rises. It, you know, unions are absolutely central to how society functions and incorporated within society. Man in a White Suit is an interesting one to talk about in terms of that. So it's a film from Ealing Studios, which is this studio that that, that got renowned for making comedies, but st- satirical comedies as well. Um, I absolutely love uh, Ealing comedies for all of their all of their faults. And Man in a White Suit, it stars Alex Guinness as Sidney Stratton, who is like this 
He's a sort of genius chemist who um, keeps getting sacked from his job because he's obsessive about his his research. So he has to sort of like smuggle his way into into being able to do his research. Actually, unpaid, I think, when he when uh, uh, a particular point in the film, the particular point where he makes his great discovery, he discovers a material, this white material that um, can never get dirty and will never wear out. What's the matter? Mr. Hoskins, it's worked! I've done it! The radioactive groups in the fiber-forming molecules haven't catalyzed the internal rearrangement. Not in the least! I thought the polymerization would be aesthetically hindered, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Where are my notes? Where are my notes? Mr. Stratton! Uh, I'll see you later. I've got to see Mr. Burnley! I'll do that! I've done it! I've done it! Stop him! Stop him! And so he discovers this, presents it to the people who run this this factory, Burnley's Textiles, and they're all really excited about it. So, oh, yeah, we're, well, basically, we're call of the market. Then they realise that the rest of the textile bosses go and meet, and they say, look, you know, basically, if you, if you allow this to go ahead, we will eliminate our market. And um, Alec Guinness or Sidney Stratton goes to their workers, who, who he thinks will be sympathetic, but, of course, they're, they recognise that what's going to happen is that they'll be out of jobs if this goes ahead. So they go on strike. They have this strike to try to force the bosses to suppress this invention. Um, and the, like, the portrayal of the unions and of the workers is particularly sympathetic. In some ways, you could sort of see it as a sort of middle-class, moralistic... Um, individualistic. Individualistic. The individual, it's the genius individual being held back and hold and his the genius individual is the agent of progress he's being held back both by corporate uh, the corporate conservatism but also the bureaucratic inertia of the unions and the working class yeah and so, so and it fits into into like ealing comedies tend to have this sort of characteristic attitude towards uh, t- towards unions you know, they they pretend to be even-handed in this way that both the unions and the and the bosses are are, are self-interested and and um, uh, self-interested, etc. I mean, I found it. I've always found this film really uncomfortable for that reason, <laughs> as a union man. But I mean, it is also it's a critique of industrial capitalism. It's a, it is a critique of built-in obsolescence, like planned obsolescence as a feature of contemporary capitalism at a very early moment in the history of that being a part of the way that it works. So it is a sort of critique in consumerism, and it is, but it is also, it has something to say about the apparent, what it sees as the complicity of the unions and all, you know, the unions and the union bureaucracy and a sort of working class small C conservatism with this. And it's a disposition and it's an analysis. It can really go either way. It could lead you towards a revolutionary critique of industrial capitalism and it's, and a critique of bureaucratic corporatist trade unionism's complicity with that. And that is a, a critique which is you know, central to the revolutionary tradition going back to the 1880s. But it could also lead you to just be a Thatcherite. And say so if it weren't for all, if it weren't for the dead hand of the welfare state and regulation and the unions, then this fantastic entrepreneur would be able to you know improve all our lives with his miracle fabric. So it could really go either way, and it does go. But it does go. It, it is it's a sensibility which over the course of the sixties to the eighties is going to go both ways in the wider culture. Yeah, because you could give it a, a you could you could give it a reading in which is a critique of. Uh, of uh, the uh, the attitude towards technology under capitalism, basically. So that we talked about this in our, in our show about technology, about how the direction of technology is driven, not by need or or, or or its potential uses, but by profitability. 
And so, you know, that's not an abstract critique, right? That's why that's why pharmaceutical companies put huge amounts of money re- into researching uh, drugs to to deal with middle-aged impotence. I'm so glad they do, reader, dear listener. <laughs> um, and they don't, you know, treat uh, uh, do research into drugs which can save millions of lives in 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 the global south. So it could be seen as a critique of that, which then has a sub critique of of the unions as you know. A critique which says there's a limitation to a politics which is based around, you know, unionization in which you are trying to to uh, push your own interests uh, within the logic of of capitalism. And if only we could break with capitalism completely, we could all be having uh, white suits and, and and running around the town, etc. Anyway, the, the end of the the end of the just to, to give you the plot, the end of it. It ends up with um, with uh, the, the protagonist running around in a white white suit, running around town, getting kidnapped by the bosses, getting kidnapped by the workers, and then his 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 uh, clothes start to fray, and he realizes he's messed his formula up, and in fact, it only lasts a little a little time. What is the next film we've got on our? Salt of the Earth, which I haven't oh, seen. Oh yeah, Salt of the Earth. So this is this is a film from 1954. So three years after Man in a White Suit, set in in, in New Mexico, and in fact, it's a it's a film about a strike that happens in New Mexico in 1951. So the same year Man in a White Suit gets released, but this one is completely completely different. It's um, a sort of gritty neorealist sort of influence film in which the director. Uses he uses five professional actors, and the rest of the cast are basically minors and their families. And m- most of that cast have actually participated in the strike three years before. So it's a strike around a mine in New Mexico. Um, it's a really interesting film. The acting isn't particularly great. <laughs> I rewatched it this week, um, but that's because it's not using professional actors, and that's not the point of it. But like the politics is really, really interesting for its time. We would think of it now as like a film about the intersectional left or a film of the intersectional left because the the, the miners are Mexican-Americans. They go on strike around safety, et cetera, uh, but their demands are we want the same treatment as uh, Anglo-American workers in different mines, so they have different different sort of safety sets up, et cetera. Um, the women, uh, the, the, the wives, basically, they say, oh, look, you need to – you need to include like the sanitation in the in the, the company provided houses. We haven't got running water. We haven't got toilets. And the the, the male workers say, no, no, no. That's we get our we'll get our demands at work first, and we'll deal with that other stuff. We gotta get equality on the job. Then we'll work on these other things. Give it to the men. I see. The men. Your strike may be for your demands, but what wives want that comes later. Always later. Now, don't you start talking against the union again. But then, you know, the police get this, they get an injunction to ban the miners from being on the picket line. But the injunction doesn't include the wives, so the wives then go on the picket line and form the picket line. The police attack the wives, and the wives end up in jail. So it ends up in this situation where the men are at home trying to look after the after the children and do the cooking, etc. So they suddenly realise that, in fact, they should have, they, they do need to include sanitation, etc., and all of that in in their demands but it's like this really is a it's like a it's not a didactically political film but its politics are really really clear you know the mexican american workers they 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 make all these statements the reason that the anglos get better 
conditions than us is because you know the bosses want to use that to make a split in the workers basically they can they can say to the anglo workers uh, at least you're not getting dealt with in the same manner uh, as the mexicans the director herbert bieberman he was blacklisted by the house of an american activities committee and sent to jail for six months for refusing to testify against other directors. This is this big part of the like McCarthy Red Scare in America. There was this big wave of inquiries trying to trying to basically ban and uh, blacklist leftist actors, writers, directors, and topics basically, uh, which will give you some sort of clue why you know films about strikes in the U.S. don't just just disappear um, are really not prominent through the through the fifties and early sixties. So the film was suppressed, basically, that film. And it, it became a sort of like one of these cult hits that, that emerged over the six, late 60s and early 70s amongst, you know, the new left. So that's Salt of the Earth, well worth a watch, I, I think. And so then we moved to 1959 with I'm All Right, Jack, another Ealing comedy. Uh, do you want to talk about this one, Jim? Well, I'm All Right, Jack, is one of the is one of the most famous of the Ealing comedies. It's probably, it might be the most most famous British comedy of the fifties. Um, it famously features Peter Sellers as a communist trade union leader, an organizer in a, in a factory. Uh, the action of the film is around, you know, centers around a strike. I mean, it's not unlike. I mean, it owes a lot to a man in the white suit in a way. I mean, the, the central protagonist isn't a genius scientist. He's he's a sort of lovable loser from the upper middle classes who, get, who ends up working in a factory, but. The attitude is very. The attitude is very, very similar. Uh, the attitude of the film is, you know, the film invites you to identify with a very, almost explicitly middle class bourgeois liberal perspective, f- according to which both the, the 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 slightly sinister Leninist, but also corruptible sort of Leninist bureaucrats of the trade unions and the sort of corporate executives of a company. They're all on the take. They're all up. They're all out for themselves. Yes, here's another good one to start on. Collective childhood and factory manhood. Oh, sounds fun. Yeah, very descriptive. It's all about how they run factories in a worker's state. However, I won't spoil it for you. You ever been to Russia, Mr. Kite? Uh, no, not yet. It's one place I'd like to go to, though. All them cornfields and bally in the evening. Oh, I wish I knew as much about it as you do. Uh, you ever read any of Lenin's works, have you? Um, no, I'm afraid I haven't. That'll open your eyes for you. I mean, this is ironic, basically, because I'm all right, Jack, is a phrase which gets used. It's a colloquial phrase in British 20th century culture. And it refers to, it's usually, it's used as a sort of critical term. It's used as a term of moral censure against people who are seen as not not exhibiting any sort of solidarity towards other, usually other members of the working class. So I'm all right, Jack, means I'm doing fine. I don't care about anyone else. And so it's a ter- it is itself a term which is drawn from a vocabulary of working class solidarity as a kind of ethic. And it, but in the film, the I'm all right, Jack, is, is is sort of implied to be the attitude of the union bureaucracy as well and trade unionists to the extent that they see their kind of short term interests being being um, defended and they're very and they're they're, see, they're very explicitly presented in the film as like obstructing improvements to efficiencies in the factories which this naive guy from the you know upper classes like what would like to implement for any everybody's benefit in the factory so I mean it. 
Peter Sellers, because it's Peter Sellers, you know, he's, he's famously, you know, he's very gives a very charismatic performance. That if if you've got if you've got even vaguely left wing or pro union, you know, inclinations, you can't help but find sort of sympathetic. And I think the film makes him sympathetic despite itself. But I don't think it wants to make him sympathetic. Really, I think ultimately it's really a reactionary film. To be honest, it's a re, it's a reactionary film, sort of it, from the against the post war settlement, from the perspective of the sort of you know liberal liberalism of the nineteen thirties. You know, which is conscious of its own sort of residuality and is trying to eventually going to try to reinvent itself as Thatcherism and you know, Blairism, really. But so I sort of, it's an absolutely fascinating film. It's a fascinating social document that I have really enjoyed showing to students like many times. But it is also sort of horrible, I think, actually, in terms of that it's, you know, it's self satisfied. You know, it's self-satisfied depiction of a social world it thinks itself to be morally above in some way um i really you know i, I always I, I like i mean i would always show students that and then show them a taste of honey which we're not going to talk about today but uh, i just think listeners can work out for themselves why i might show them a taste of honey after showing them this piece of liberal filth <laughs> <laughs> i mean the other thing to the other thing to say about it would be to compare the the role of of the women in this film to the women in salt of the earth because in Salt of the Earth, the women are like, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling to get their own interest here. You know, they take the place of the men on the picket line. Here, like the women, in particular the wife of, of um, Peter Sellers, who's played by um, Irene Handel, who I absolutely love and is brilliant in this, <laughs> such a great actor. But like her thing is like she's, she's a stand-in for middle-class common sense basically you know yeah we'll see which is not historically totally inaccurate well, no. i mean women i mean you know women voted even working class women mostly voted tory at this time and and you know she she, she represents that type very well yeah yeah no no totally but um yeah so that that's sort of interesting that's sort of the role of women and but the other thing that's interesting when you look at it when you watch it now is um the women are are, are, are this sort of um, uh, these 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 people who've got common sense because they're not inflicted with the the British disease, and it's just fascinating to to, to yeah. And the British the British, the British disease. disease is understood to be class politics. Yeah, yeah totally. You know, that's what they mean. I mean, it's they they and and yeah, indeed, they're not. They're anti political. I mean, this is the thing. All these films are anti political. The eating comedies. The trouble is the eating comedies. With some, with the exception, I would say maybe of Whiskey Galore. Which sort of stands out as quite a different sort of film. Um, they are basically anti-political. They are all films about how politics is, is stupid and is like never gets anywhere and can only fail and you know should be countered with with the kind of you know the good natured the everyday common sense of an English of a member of the English liberal you know, petty bourgeoisie. Yeah, although your leftist can still get some pleasure from seeing the British working class portrayed as work shy and trying to do as little as possible and sort of in control of their factory, basically, um, which is well, not... I did grow up. I mean, I grew up loving these films and I do love them. They're incredibly watchable. They're incredibly well made. And, and it is a sort of goal, one of the few golden moments in British cinema history, dealing comedies. So they're incredibly well done. They're just, you know, they're really reactionary, like even compared to American films of the same time period, to be honest. I want to talk about a film called The Working Class Goes to Heaven, an Italian film from 1971. We have to talk about it on this show because um, if you've ever wondered where the name Navara comes from in Navara Media, it is named in reference to this film, The Working Class Goes to Heaven, which is set in the northern Italian city of Navara. I remember this film going round 
uh, the, the 2010 student movement. But it is a real, real classic of a classic depiction of Italy at that time, basically. And so they, they say that 68 only lasted two months or a month in, in France. It lasted 10 years in, in Italy. I, there was a big hot autumn in that in 1968, which spread to the factories, and then that continued in this, this really high level of worker organization and militancy right up until the late 1970s. Uh, and this is like a real document of, of, of that. It's shot um, in a sort of cin- cinema verity style by this director, Elio Petri, who who was, was a member of the Communist Party who left after the 1956 invasion of Hungary. So it's like a dissident, a dissident communist, if you like, and like you know, lots of the it was, lots of the shots were shot inside a factory, which was at the time occupied by protesting and striking workers. And so, lots of the the extras in the film are you know basically workers on strike in be, getting filmed in their in their factory, etc. And it's about this guy who um who who's really into basically he's like you know a really fucked up guy, um Lula Massa and. When we first meet him, he's he's the most productive uh, worker in the factory. He's really proud of his productivity and the money he can make. Then he, he basically loses a finger in an accident. That starts him in this process of like questioning his previous attitudes, basically. It's a real film that, that portrays this idea of the refusal of work, which is like a real key concept and that probably a strategy, I would say, in Italy in the 1970s. And like that concept, the refusal of work, originates in the chemical factories up in Porta Maghera, which is near Venice, where the, these workers in the chemical factories, they'd gone on strike, they'd earned the right to have a certain percentage of days a month to go and study, basically. And But the thing they study, organised study groups, and they study the effects of the chemicals that they're producing on themselves. And they realise after a while that these are cancerous. And so like the, 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 the factory's response is to raise wages in compensation for the, the the hazardous conditions and their response is no you only have one life <laughs> you only have one life that means there's only one solution to this we have to work less or not work at all in these sorts of conditions and that's the, this idea of the refusal of work that you, you know they they refuse to take the capitalist point of view basically they take the workers point of view the point of view of, of like living labor of life and it's repeated in this film, The Working Class Goes to Heaven. In fact, one of the cruelest scenes I've ever seen in a film, I mean that sort of ironically, is when the, when the workers have to go into the factory in, 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 in the film, there's these groups of radical students outside who hand them literature and they, they, they're shouting at them. They're going, it's dark when you go to work. It's dark when you come home. The bosses are stealing your days. The bosses are stealing your life. And like Lula, when he chops his finger off, he sort of starts to think, well, they're right, basically, you know. Um, he starts to get in, in, involved with the radical students, etc. There's this classic speech that you can see on on YouTube in which he repeats that. Basically, he says, "Look, it is dark when we come when we go to work. It is dark when we when we go home. You know what sort of life is that? You know what I mean?" And then he leads a sort of strike around the refusal of this piecework system against the wishes of the of the union, etc. Gets sacked and then reemployed, but. It, you know, it's not a sentimental film like some of the films you'll watch later, which are quite sentimental about strikes. It's like, like you know, it's harsh and volatile. Lula's no hero. He's sort of like half cracking up. Anyway, superb film. See it if you can. Perché non lo raddoppiamo questo cotino? Eh? Così lavoriamo anche la domenica. Magari veniamo più dentro anche di notte. Anzi, magari portiamo dentro anche i bambini, le donne. I bambini li sbattiamo sotto a lavorare. 
Le donne ci sbattono noi un panino in bocca e noi via che andiamo avanti senza staccare. Avanti, avanti, avanti! Avanti per queste quattro lire vigliacche fino alla morte! Yeah, it is a classic, the working class goes to heaven. I mean, it's sort of the point at which Italian neorealism converges with the emergent sensibility of Italian autonomism. Um, not unlike uh, 1971, <laughs> <laughs> the 1971 British film, Carry On At Your Convenience. Um, Carry On films, for anyone who doesn't know, are a film, are really the immediate descendants of the Ealing comedies. So they're a sequence of, British uh, comedy films featuring an ensemble cast, which you know cop- crops up again in again in the same films, and they start off as quite gentle, you know, imme- just very essentially just eat, they, they're eating comedies, and um, but then they also get acquire this um, reputation for you know a lot of sort of sexual innuendo becoming increasingly risque as the as you get into the 70s and that, that's mainly what they're remembered for now sort of uh, lots of ridiculous puns and lots of sexual innuendo that element sort of goes into the benny hill comedy which, um which is sort of you know that's the only element that's left when you get into benny hill and so it's this sort of it's a combination of the sort of mannered middle class liberalism of the eating comedies with this sort of this more bawdy sense of humour, which is often said to have its roots in the music halls and sort of seaside postcards of the early twentieth century. So anyone my age or kids age growing up in Britain sort of grew up watching a lot of these films. And Carry On At Your Convenience is is called Carry On At Your Convenience ha-ha because it's set in a toilet factory. You know, so a toilet is like a public toilets in Britain are sometimes referred to as public conveniences. And it 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 centers around a strike in the toilet factory. And it's it's funny. I I, did, I mean I really I only know I don't remember if this was talked about in the one book I read about it years ago. Uh, but I so I only picked up this claim from the Wikipedia article on the film. But apparently it was the first Carry On film that that did poorly at the box office, and this was widely attributed to the fact that the trade unionists are presented in the film as ridiculous, and that it, and that this was seen as alienating the working core working class audience for the carry on films it's definitely true the audience skewed more working class than that for the eating comedies but i still think it is really interesting that essentially i mean of course all of the portrayals in carry on films are slightly more cartoonish and slightly slightly less subtle than those in eating comedies but broadly speaking the convent the you know the, the the workers aren't portrayed as desperately less sympathetic than the bosses and the portrait i would say in carry on at your convenience i think the portrayal of the workers is pretty much just and the trade unionist rehearsing the the stereotypes that had already been established in the eating comedies of the 50s and i think it probably is also an indicator of the changing mood of the times that you know the increasing working class militancy the increasing union density and the and the growing sense that you know unions were engaged in a struggle with the capitalist class for to represent the interests of the workers rather than just being engaged in a sort of cozy co- you know duopoly with the capitalist class which is the way they're presented in the 50s films so I think it is really interesting. I don't know, you didn't you watch it this week here? I did, yeah, yeah. It's one of those films you can watch. You can watch have it on while you're doing something else. <laughs> I have got a I've got a soft spot for for carry-on films uh because of my age as you mentioned earlier. Um 
it, it, this is really one of the worst ones though it's really rubbish and like the 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 trade union uh shop steward vic it's just like the butt of all the jokes. He, you know, there there are jokes going around everywhere, but he is the butt of them, basically. Uh, you know, even that the, him and the boss's son are sort of like battling over the girl, uh, and he, you know, he actually gets beaten up by the boss's son, and then the the, the runs off with the girl, who runs off with the girl, and then the end of the film is when, you know, the workers and management all pull together to fulfil a big order. Like you know, it's basically much worse than the most of the other films. Some of which are, are really, really bad as well. But it, uh, yeah, it, it, in some ways, I think it's much cruder than the, than the Ealing and, and and less sympathetic to the to, to unions and the shop stewards than the than the Ealing comedies. It is time we made a stand. Come on, brothers, keep the line moving. Are we? Or are we not going to get what we want? Except the Mrs. Moore. <laughs> I mean, on the factory floor. But I think it is really interesting that this was the be- the box office failure. You know, it was a license to print money. They couldn't, you know, that you could make a carry on film in a formulaic manner as they were, and they would just keep printing money. Basically, just keep being successes, and then this was the first one. It's a failure. I mean, it, I think it does represent a sort of turning cultural turning point because this is the beginning of the real anti-union, the very fierce anti-union backlash of the 70s and 80s. It's going to end up informing the mainstream of British politics and culture in so many ways. But also, also the same year, 1971. So we've got three films from 1971, unsurprisingly, uh, really. Um, I want to mention Ken Loach's film, The Rank and File. So this is one of the first films produced by Ken Loach, and his, the British uh, radical film director and filmmaker Ken Loach. I'll be very surprised if anyone listening to ACFM isn't already familiar with Ken Loach uh, and his long-term scriptwriting collaborator, Jim Allen. Uh, and it was actually a TV play, but it's an hour and 20 minutes long, so it's pretty much film length. Uh, and you, you can find it online pretty easily. And the rank and file was is a film about it's 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 about a strike that that historically did take place in nineteen nineteen seventy at the Pilkington's Glassworks in St Helens. And I only I I've watched loads of Ken Loach films, but I only watched this for the first time during the lockdown. Actually, this was a lockdown the first stages of the lockdown when everybody wasn't doing any work and was just sitting around watching stuff. Uh, um, and I, I watched this and it was very affecting to me because uh, my dad lived in St. Helens from 1980 um, for, you know, up until sometime in the nineties. And I really got, and we were, you know, St. Helens is a pit town. Uh, and, um, you know, that was where I sort of experienced the minor strike because my, you know, my mum and dad were separated, but I would spend every weekend with my dad for most of the early eighties. You know, he had lots of friends who were people who, you know, who had been in, were involved in those struggles and, some, I mean, and some of the people I got to, the guys I got to know best were, were guys who had worked at Pilks, as it was called, at the Pilkington Glassworks Factory. In fact, you know, one or two. Uh, I would say the guy who first taught me, you know, anything about sort of Marxist theory was a guy who had been blacklisted from the, you know, for having worked at, the, at Pilks. Um, so it was really, yeah, it was really, it's, it was really sort of, um, yeah, for me, it was very affecting to watch that film. And um, it's, it is a really, it's a great early example of, of Ken Loach's sort of signature style of, nat- of extreme naturalism and, 
you know, mixing sort of professional actors or not professional, mixing sort of actors with people who, who are actually involved in the events and kind of verbatim repeating, trying to repeat sort of bits of, you know, dialogue from the actual, you know, from the actual events themselves. So, so it's a sort of, it, it's both a, a film and a sort of attempt at a kind of oral history. Um, uh, it's a really, really interesting document, very powerful piece of work. The year after that, 1972, uh, John Luke Goddard makes his great his great film about a strike. So, do you want to talk, Nadia? You've seen this one. Yeah, irony not lost on me that uh, women find their voice in the 70s as they do on this podcast. So, tout va bien, uh, it's all fine. 1972 French film, as you said, Jeremy, by uh, Jean-Luc Godard with his collaborator Jean-Pierre Gorin. And this film's actually got Jane Fonda in it and um, Yves Montand. Um, it's a great film, really recommend it to anyone who can uh, find it out there. So far, I've not been able to find... Um, a version that is free to watch um, that has English subtitles, but there are clips out there worth seeing those. So it's set in a worker's strike uh, in a sausage factory. Um, the theme of sausages and striking returns from the Icelandic women's strike talked about in the full um, trip. So it's hailed, I, I like this film and I, and I do agree that it's more nuanced and less romanticized kind of view of the 1968 um, French student uh, strikes because it kind of does tackle the outcome of failed organizing, but also the sexism and misogyny in the movement. And I think the differences between like rank and file and union bosses as well. And I, I absolutely love the cross-section panning scenes, which is very Brechtian. For those, um, for those of you who don't know Bertolt Brecht, he was a German theatre practitioner and playwright and a socialist realist artist. And I love the way the kind of film speaks to that kind of art form. Soci socialist, but anti-realist. Because he thought that the whole notion that you try to create a kind of naturalistic reproduction of actual social life in the theatre was just reactionary and stupid. Yeah, sure. I mean, I have seen him referred to in that way, but maybe I'm thinking about a different a different form of understanding it. So, so no, we're agreeing. It's the, sa it's the same thing where theatre is, is an educational form, like you're not supposed to lose yourself and believe that you're somehow in the film. That's what we mean, right? Are we in agreement about that? Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. It'd be more accurate to call it anti, you know, uh, he has been called, I mean, some people do call him socialist realist, actually, but he, I mean, he was opposed to the socialist realism of Stalinism, but it was really anti-naturalism. And indeed, he's like, um, Williams calls him a critical realist, I think. So I'm being, I'm being a bit, I'm being a bit um, pedantic. No, no, I think, no, I think it's important that I'm with, when I've got a bit of a, a background in theatre and the way it was kind of described in performing art is that he never wants, like Brecht never wanted the audience to, to not to, to understand that they were like beyond the proscenium arch. Like you yeah. understood that this was a play and it was a play that's trying to tell you something rather than, to, to, you know, to, 
to sub, to feel subsumed in the action as if yeah. it was. I think naturalism is the right naturalist is the right word for it there. Yeah. Well, he, well, he was reacting against like the naturalist generation, like Ibsen in the theatre, who, who were kind of yeah. Chekhov, whose the whole thing was, oh God, this is exactly what it's really like to be in a bourgeois family, like. Brecht sort of, you know, I mean, the classic, the, the classic Brechtian technique is the breaking of the fourth wall. The actor addresses the audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is, indeed, you're absolutely not supposed to suspend disbelief. And yeah, this film is full of that. It's full of, it's full of like, you know, people talking about the fact that they are making a film and talking to the camera and like talking yeah. about the budget for the film and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it is in a way a film about how capitalism destroys society. And in, it has been referred to as like, a manifesto for post like 1968 student revolt, you know, and then there was the general strike that happened uh, in, in France as well. But but the, the the thing that I really want to um, draw listeners' attention to is this: it's not quite the penultimate scene, but it's very close to the end. There's a, and I, I don't want to do a spot uh, um, a plot spoiler on on this one for for anyone who hasn't seen it. But there's a there's about a seven minute scene which I think is an aesthetic masterpiece, which takes place in a supermarket. And it just sound, starts with this kind of sound of this kind of checkout sound and the conveyor belts, like, you know, with everybody checking out their stuff from one end to the other. And the camera just pans back and forward and it's one continuous scene. And it's just the action from the beginning to the end, like completely changes, like the the the, the kind of atmosphere and events in this supermarket. And it's kind of worth seeing for for that alone, especially the cashier girls who seem to react in quite a different way to, to everyone else. It's a great the scene aesthetically. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, that is the standout scene, I think, and it's and it's also, I mean, yeah, it's this seven minute, yeah, as you say, it's this seven minutes at least sequence where you're just panning across back and forth across the supermarket, but then in the aisles of the supermarket, these sort of slightly surreal vignettes are being acted out. So, exactly, uh, there's a bureau, there's an official of the Communist Party. Uh, and remember, the Communist Party at this time, by people like Goddard, are seen as kind of on the side of, of bureaucracy and, you know, the union, the union hierarchy, and even the state, like um, against the, the students and the shop floor workers. So, who's trying to sell a book? Uh, you know, who's kind of hawking his book, which he wouldn't get in a supermarket normally. And then, and then there's a bunch of students kind of going around filling up the supermarket trolleys like trying to get people to just take everything for free so it was is the sort of is the sort of action that sort of french anarchists were, were doing like at that time sometimes and yeah the whole i mean the whole film i mean the film go explicitly references may 68 again and again and again and it is this sort of it is a sort of meditation on like the condition of the left i think in france like four years after may 68 and and the fact that nobody's really sure what it meant nobody's really sure like where how you should go forward from it and yeah, and it's, I mean, but it's by, I think of all the films we're talking about today, it's, it's by far the most, like, self-consciously avant-garde, like, formally. Like, it's, and it's quite, diff it's not that easy to watch all the way through. But it is, and it's, also, it's not that clear. I mean, at the end of it, you're not entirely, it's not entirely clear what the point is, like, what the point, where they're trying to get at, because it is more an invitation to a set of reflections on the kind of problems of the left 
at that moment rather than re- i don't think it is a manifesto actually i don't think it really i think it's written from a it's produced from a point of quite self-conscious uncertainty about what you know how things might or could go forward from the point they they find themselves at historically postmodern randomness perhaps no, it's not <laughs> you know, maybe that's what it's pointing no well it's not well what's going on at this time in terms of both theory and practice on the left i mean this is the great moment of kind of radical theories the moment of Deleuze and Guattari it's the moment where of cultural studies really constituting itself in the british you know the university of birmingham and it's the moment when people are trying to work out, you know, they're not sure, people are really not sure, well, what does it mean to have, what would it really mean now to have a radical aesthetics of cinema? Because it's very different from Eisenstein. It's not like Eisenstein wanting to just depict the heroic revolutionary crowd. Like it's much more, it, the film is, is surprisingly for a self-consciously a Marxist avant-garde film. It's, it's very focused on the individuals and their own subjective experience because, but this is the thing that's going on. You know, this is the moment when Marxists are all also really into psychoanalysis and they're trying to figure out like what is a, what it would mean to really understand your own subjectivity, your own personal mm. experience in completely mm-hmm. historical terms, which of course that's what we're all trying to do on this show as well. I think we have more fun doing it than they would seem to have been doing at the time. <laughs> but, um, I mean, what people thought might be happening in 1968 was a historical sequence that began with the French Revolution was going to reach its ultimate conclusion in the establishment of a full libertarian democratic communist utopia across across Europe and America and stuff. And by 1972 is exactly the moment when it's completely clear, well, that's not what's happening. But what the fuck is actually happening is not clear. You know, women's liberation is happening and is, is challenging all kinds of preconceptions about what a desirable form of politics would, should even look like. People are questioning their own internal experience. People are experiencing, on the one hand, this is a a key theme of the film. It's also true that people are experiencing a level of prosperity and a level of social equality that up until that point in history, radicals had generally assumed could only be deliverable by a socialist revolution, that they didn't even think any form of capitalism could deliver. So there is all this ambiguity, there's all this complexity. And at the level of theory and aesthetic practice and this is going on across areas of music and, and writing about film it's going on in, this is the moment in the theater when indeed people you know people are, 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 are rediscovering brecht in a lot of contexts so people are trying to figure out like well what does it even mean what would it mean to do like genuinely radical arts like what would that even look like given that we we also know that an awful lot of art and culture is just complicit with turning us into these self-obsessed but also politically complacent bourgeois subjects and you know it's still a really compelling question like we still you know we're still asking that question today but this is a, the and i think it's that you know the film is it is a, it's an attempt to engage with that question but i don't think it i think it's sort of i don't think it knows what the answer is that question about like you know what do you how do you have a like a a, a revolutionary art in, in the age of mass consumption etc that's figured in the very first scene of the film where basically it's just a, it's just shots of somebody signing checks <laughs> and then there's a voiceover of uh, the director and somebody else discussing how um you know well you know if we get some famous actors like Yves Montan and Jane Fonda in you know then people will give us a load of money so they're like putting it up front this thing of like how do you use mass culture and fame in order for revolution and all that sort of stuff but it's also like I think you can link some of the like the formerly um avant-garde bit so it, there's lots of like jumps and like repetitions of the same scene from a slightly different angle in the in the film which are like brechtian alienation things but it's also 
it's a bit like that sort of representation of the stuckness that of of, of the left and society at that point. You know, they're stuck. They're having to try to rep, rep, They're repeating things. They can't break. They can't find the new, etc., and all that sort of stuff. I watched it for the first time last week, straight after watching Carry On at Your Convenience. And the juxtaposition of those two was just the type of jump that we need in order to resolve this question. Hey, this is Nadia. Hope you're enjoying this microdose from ACFM, the home of the weird left. You can go even weirder and leftier by subscribing to our newsletter which we will now be sending out with every new trip, so no more than about once a month, with bonus content and updates from the ACFM crew. To sign up, go to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. For more music and less chat, follow the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM. And to support us to keep bringing you even more from the ACFM cosmos, Support our hosts, Novara Media, for as little as £1 a month by going to novara.media forward slash support. That's all for now. Stay weird and wonderful, folks. This afternoon, just before we started recording, we started recording late because I finally managed to get hold of a copy of this film, Norma Ray, which was a Hollywood film produced that came out in 1979. It was a big hit. It won uh, Sally Field, the immortal Sally Field, very, very interesting American actress, won an Oscar for her portrayal of a Southern, uh, I think I think the film's set in Tennessee, um, a factory worker, worker in a textile factory, who becomes radicalised under the tutelage of a Jewish New York, a uh, New York Jewish labour organiser who comes into the town deliberately to try to organise her factory. I just got into town about uh, an hour ago. Hi, how are you? I parked my rented car, got out, and before I had a chance to adjust my crotch, the chief of police was on me saying, who are you? I don't know you. What the hell are you doing here? So I told him I was a labor organizer. Come to put a union in the O.P. Henley textile mill. And he said, the hell you are, boy. And he gave me a ticket and told me to get my ass elsewhere right quick. He was dead right, too. It was a commercial success and a critical success. Uh, 1979, this is a year before Reagan's going to get elected. Um... And it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because to me, the sort of cinematography, it, it really sort of reminded me of things you were going to see on TV over the next few years, things like Hill Street Blues. There was this, you know, there was this commitment to a certain kind of left liberal, I would say, sort of left liberal politics, which included being quite positive about trade unions and was recognised that the New Deal settlement was coming under threat, coming under pressure and that various forms of collective action were necessary to defend it. And, you know, that's the sort of historical context. Uh, but the film's not really about a strike. I'm a, it's a bit dis- uh, I wanted to, you know, I got all excited because I sort of didn't know, I thought I didn't know about this film. And it was my partner, Joe, who like, said, what about Norma Ray?" when I was talking to her about the film? And I thought, and I read about it and thought, oh, yeah, this is massive. And it's, you know, it's centrally about a woman, you know, which is really important for us. So... I was kind of scrabbling around for ages to find a copy and I managed to find, only managed to watch it this afternoon. But then it turns out there's no strike in it. It's about an organising drive, which in a way is, is, you know, is very realistic. I mean, especially in those parts of the United States, it's, get, it's getting the union 
organized and recognized is the first step to any kind of action and it's the key thing but it's a really interesting film and it's a film it's very very much informed by uh, the the experience and politics of women's liberation as well because as a piece of drama what it's really about as much as anything else is the relationship between sally field's character and this union organizer and it sort of plays very much on the fact that there is a sort of there's a degree of sexual but I mean more importantly in a way romantic sort of tension between them as they are sort of attracted to each other and but they are in other relationships with each other and it's the fact that they sort of don't ultimately you know they become friends rather than lovers and they um and you know the central character is portrayed as this you know this very this quite highly sexualized straight woman um so it's sort of it is very interesting because I think it is you know it was very much part of part of the discourse of women's liberation and feminism at that time to kind of assert the fact that you know rela- relationships between men and women who were straight you know could be productive and friendly and solidaristic and wouldn't necessarily have to be governed by logics of sexuality and romance and I sort of I only realized right at the end of the film that I had seen it years ago uh, when I was much younger, like maybe in my teens, but I had completely forgotten that it was anything to do with, uh, uh, it had anything to do with a strike and that it, or not a strike, with union organising, that what I had remembered actually, I'd remembered it as being a film about heterosexual friendship. Um, so it, and it is sort of that as well. So it is a really interesting film. Sounds very um, interesting. I haven't got a strike in it, so we're not including it. No, no, I'm joking. Not it. <laughs> but also I sort of realized this week that I had sort of I had definitely mixed up in my mind I mean not surprisingly this film with the next one that we're going to talk about from eight years later eight years 1987 and uh, this is personally one of my all-time favorite films I'll, i will sometimes cite it as my favorite film i don't honestly i don't actually think it is the best made film that we've even talked about today never mind the best made film i've ever seen uh, it really had a huge effect on me it is john sales the great american independent filmmaker john sales probably the sort of nearest equivalent in america to an american ken loach um and it is his film about the West Virginia coalfield wars of the 1920s, or a key episode that takes place in that. It's his film, Matewan. Matewan, and it is, you know, it is remembered today. I mean, it's a, it is remembered today as a, a sort of iconic film of the American labour movement. Uh, it's a very self-consciously, and I would say unashamedly sentimental film about a real historical episode that takes place in West Virginia in 1920 during the struggle to have the uh, have mine uh, get miners organised and get unions recognised, the coalfield wars were incredibly violent. You know, period of American labour history. You know, not really. I mean, it was really like something out of the early nineteenth century in Britain. You know, people got. I mean, there were people miners and on the one hand and and you know, the mining companies and the security companies they hired the so-called detective agencies they were really we would call them security companies you know shot at each other they had pitched shooting battles with each other on various occasions and this is about a history that lead the history that leads up to one of those it features you know a, a saintly and eventually martyred union organizer who is a uh, former wobbly you know, one of the industrial workers of the world um 
talk, you know, talking about the, the one big union that the workers should all join. It features the uh, utterly stop, standard um, sort of predictable scenes in which uh, the black workers demonstrate their capacity for solidarity and uh, help to overcome some of the ingrained racism of the white workers. And probably my favourite bit, the Italian immigrant workers, you know, also are brought into the union and are shown to have probably historically very accurately at 1920, uh, a rather more sophisticated understanding of what a union is and how it fits into a kind of history of working class struggle than the Appalachian miners who are kind of encountering all this for the first time. A really, really moving use of music in the film. Again, it's, called, it's pretty schmaltzy, but there are these scenes where, uh, you know, a black miner playing his harmonica and a white Appalachian miner playing the fiddle and a... Um, and an Italian minor playing, I mean, it's a sort of zither, I think, that the Italians are playing, or, or a mandolin, it's a mandolin, um, are sort of playing bits of each other's music and the music, or, or they're, they're, list, they're playing separately and then they, they start to listen to each other playing and they, they converge on a sort of hybrid tune. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's very romanticised, it's very idealised, it's all quite soft-focused, but it's also very moving. It's you know, really a real sort of tearjerker of a movie and a very, very powerful, you know, in very deliberately trying to make, you know, a film that you know, that might appeal to, you know, somebody whose who's only way of engaging with cinema is through sort of Hollywood, sort of sentimental cliches, but telling them a really radical story in the process. Um yeah, it's really. I think it's really quite something. It feels a little bit like a western. Do you know what I mean? So it's set in a small yeah. town, and the that's right. The, yes. the the sheriff and the mayor are on side of the the miners, and then the mine owners bring in this like really um, evil detective agency who basically are just there to like kill and shoot and intimidate the miners back to work, basically. And the union organizer is Shane. You know, he wanders yeah. in the, the stranger who wanders yeah, yeah, into totally, town, yeah. but tries to end up saving yeah. everybody. But then he ends up getting martyred. And, and the showdown is like a high noon sort of thing because the sheriff and the yeah, mayor are standing yeah. off against this big force of detectives. Um, and there's a shootout, and all of the miners are, uh, uh, you know, shooting from various places, etc. Uh, which is apparently it is a you know something that really did happen in Matter One. Yeah, it did. It, it did. It did really happen. Riff Raff is a film by uh, Ken Loach that came out in 1990, and I saw it in 1990. I haven't seen it since. Um, and I'm, is there a strike in it, definitely? Well, I don't... There's, it's, a, it's partly about trying to organise on a building yeah. site. Yeah. And I, I'm, I, see, I, watched it, I watched it during my Ken Loachathon in lockdown, although I had also seen it in 1990. And... I'm not sure if they get to the point of an actual strike, but um, Ricky Tomlinson pe- plays a, a construction worker who does have a, who has a history of labour organising, and the film is partly about 
like the difficulty of organizing in the construction industry and the necessity for organizing in the construction industry. I mean, it is one of Ken Loach's most perfectly realized films. I mean, it's a, it's a film about construction workers and one of them gets hurt and they're trying to, you know, they're, they're, they're this group of construction workers is just sort of trying to live and work together and make a life for themselves. And I would say is, you know, it's one of Ken Loach's sort of slice of working class life films, which also, which presents working class life as always necessarily, you know, caught up with processes of struggle. And it is, uh, it's, re- it's one of his most perfectly realised examples of that genre, I think. We should, uh, we should probably so also we- say that Ricky Tomlinson, who's best known now for his role in the Royal Family comedy series, like this was his this his either his first acting job or his breakthrough acting job anyway, and so Ricky Tomlinson. He, he's a, no, he'd already been in Brookside. For a few oh, he years hadn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. that sort of spoils my narrative a little bit. But let's talk about Ricky <laughs> Tomlinson <laughs> because uh, before that, before Brookside, he was um, which is a um, soap opera set in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Which is the, the? I mean, we could do a whole thing about Brookside. Brookside starts off as this almost Ken Loach television, this radical thing about working class, a working class community in Liverpool. Actually, a mixed class community in, in the Liverpool suburb that is dramatising all this sort of class tension and the, the experience of Thatcherism. And then by the end of the nineties, it's just become a sort of byword for sensationalist soap opera. In, you know, Let's do a whole episode on Brookside. <laughs> the first ever lesbian <laughs> kiss on T on UK TV. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, Ricky um, Tomlinson. Sorry, I interrupted. Ricky Tomlinson, class hero. Yeah, he basically <laughs> had led um, he'd led strikes on a building site on building sites and been uh, famously put into prison in the mid nineteen seventies. So he was a sort of working class hero who. You can see why he ended up in a in a Ken Loach film, anyway. Yeah, I would say if you want to know about that, I would listen to I've recommended before the Working Class History podcast, and Working Class History did a, a few episodes, I think, about the history of the construction, about the struggles in the on the construction sites, especially in the seventies, and Tom Litton's involvement, and that's excellent work. Nineteen ninety eight millions of people without homes. Do you know how many people that have to work in this country? Oh, three and a half million. Do you know how many of them are building workers? 250,000. Yeah, but that's... Don't want to oh, of course they want to work. There's millions of acres of unused land. I'm not talking about green belts for building on. And the brickyards are stocked with gear. No one should be without a home in the 1990s. Crazy, man. You've them off again. Uh, all right, yeah, I won't talk long about Hoffer, but uh, so this is this is like a 1992 film about the, the 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 famous International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union leader Jimmy Hoffer, directed by um, Danny DeVito, who is a good leftist, uh, and starring starring Jack Nicholson as uh, as Jimmy Hoffer. Um, uh, it basically just recounts Hoffer's life. So it basically that the the start of the film is is Hoffer is waiting in a car with a friend in 1975 to meet somebody. He disappears in 1975 because it's not just about um, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters is basically tied up with the mafia. And then the, the film then sort of cuts to um, Hoffer in the 30s where he's organising uh, a strike, basically, uh, organising uh, um, truckers in America and organising a strike, uh, you know, and you see him wielding a, a baseball bat, beating up non-union non-union workers who are going, going into strike and, you know, basically a really, really violent scene. 
then he becomes a leader of the Teamsters. The Teamsters like become really famous because they loan their pension schemes are used to build Las Vegas. Based the mafia uses the, the Teamsters pension schemes to build the hotels and casinos in in, in Las Vegas. Um, and then basically, this is really it ends with him getting killed by the mafia, and, and, and basically nobody ever finds his body. So Jimmy Hoffa, it was a huge incident in the, in the seventies, and it's still this thing of you know. You'd see on The Simpsons Jimmy Hoffa's body being found or emerging or, or something, something like that, basically. Mr. Hoffa? Yeah, that's right. But it's sort of interesting because that sort of that that's that time when unions in America became a sort of byword for corruption, etc. Lots of ways. That's the outcome uh, and part of the process, probably as well, of that that red scare linked um, elimination of a whole uh, layer of uh, of leftists um, and um, left wing union leaders, basically, which created the room for this other form of unionism. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, the, I mean, the militant, you know, the the militant layer of organisers who came through the wobblies, came through the red scare panics of the early of the twenties and thirties. You know, a lot of them, you know, they're, they're driven out of union organization as unions get more incorporated to the mainstream American capitalism during the high period of Fordism. But, you know, the vacuum left by that layer of militant club working class, organic intellectual organizers, you know, that vacuum in many contexts is filled by the freaking mafia. Yeah. And then the fact that it's been filled by the mafia is used as an excuse for more like anti-union propaganda, which you know, we hmm. runs through films from like on the waterfront, for example, in in some ways. On the so, waterfront, written by Elia Kazan, who famously testified against his friends yeah, at the House and American scab, activities, and then made scum. made on the waterfront to sort of try to justify himself. Um, but anyway, like, there's a nice punchline to this <laughs> because from the 1970s, there's been like there's been campaigns or movements to try to to to, to Redemocratize the the Teamsters, and it succeeded last year. So that yeah, the, the, um, victor, the Teamsters yeah. for a Democratic Union basically got control of it. And who did they displace when they got control of the union? Hoffa's son, James Hoffa Junior. Um, anyway, it's part of it, and that, that's one of these hopeful bits about you know, uh, it's one of a series of unions that have been sort of recaptured by by campaigns that democratize them and, and push them in a more industrially militant uh, uh, direction over the last sort of few years but one of a real signal one actually because it only happened last year yeah i mean for british listeners we should explain the teamsters in america are the other the, the key uh, his, the key transport union historically so it always sounds it's a very funny strange name to to, to non-American ears, Teamsters. Like they were literally, I mean, once upon a time there were people driving teams of horses, but they're the equivalent of the transport and general workers who eventually merge into Unite in, in British Union history. So <laughs> on our list of films, we're leaping ahead. <laughs> we're leaping. The 90s is quite short this time. We're leaping ahead to the year 2000. And <laughs> one of very few British films about the mind strike, Billy Elliot. <laughs> Nadia, you should talk about this. Uh, yeah, Billy Elliot is a 
great film, I think. And yeah, year 2000. Um, also was made into a stage production, quite a successful stage production um, in the West End in London, which um, is more actually political than the film. And apparently there's a lot more Margaret Thatcher in there and, and, and more of the, the kind of sense of community. But the basic plot is... Uh, about father-son relationship, and this is taking place in the northeast, I believe, in a mining town in the 1980s, a fictional mining town. And Billy just wants to do ballet, and you know, in the backdrop of the miners' strike, you know, culturally, it's it's that kind of difficult situation of um, a son wanting to do something that is, you know, stereotypically for for girls, with the whole backdrop of all of what was happening in the miners' strike, which, you know, you guys can talk a little bit more uh, about. But for me, I think what's also really interesting about the film is there's this one line where I think there's one of the other characters, I can't remember who it is, who basically, you know, uh, Billy reveals that he wants to, you know, do ballet, that he's been invited to, to to go down to London and join the Royal Ballet. And, and the character says, the Royal Ballet, do you have any idea what we're going through? And I think that's a great encapsulation of, you know, class and culture in Britain and how it kind of plays out and that whole know your placeism and how that stuff is kind of transmitted through culture, you know, especially with the backdrop of, you know, Thatcherism and the minor strike, et cetera. So I think it's a, a fantastic story. Um um, because, because, you know, it's, it's about that specific relationship, but with this like really massive political backdrop of what the community that this boy is living in is, is going through at the time. I'm not sure what the message is with Billy, with Billy, sorry, leaving his hip home, you know, his mining town and going to London. I'm not sure what the message is there, but it's a great film to, to watch, especially Julie Waters, who's amazing as the chain smoking ballet teacher. Today, Billy missed a very important audition. Audition? For the Royal Ballet School. The Royal Ballet? School. It's where they teach the ballet. You've got to be joking, though. No, I'm perfectly serious. Have you any idea what we're going through? I've been in a fucking cell all night. And you come round here talking shite and you! Fucking ballet! What are you trying to do? Make him a fucking scab for the rest of his life? Look at him! But do you guys want to talk more about the minor strike stuff? Well, this is the thing. It's like, it's obviously, it's not a film about the minor strike. I mean, it's, it's a... It's not, but it's not disingenuous of me to describe it as that because the minor strike hadn't just hadn't had that much presence in in cinema, British cinema. Ooh, totally, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not a film about. It's a film about a boy who just wants to dance. I mean, in many ways, it's a very cliched, even by two thousand. It's a very cliched story about um, a boy, you know, a, about somebody who wants to be di- who is a bit different from his community and wants to express himself and eventually gets to do so. So in some ways, it's a kind of star-forming narrative. Now, it, it's a sort of, you know, a, a star is born sort of narrative, although the actual film of Star is Born is much darker than Billy Elliot. It's a sort of star is born narrative of a kind which is familiar going back to sort of musicals from the you know, from the 30s onwards. You know, the shop girl becomes a star sort of narrative. It's that sort of thing. It happens to use 
the um, the minor strike as, as a backdrop uh, in a way I'll talk about in a minute. It's also it's very typical, I would say, of films from exactly this, the late nineties and early two thousands. I mean, I don't think I like it quite as much as Nadia. I sort of I see why people like it, but there was a real there was a whole load of films from both Britain and America around this time, which to my mind are just incredibly self-congratulatory about how brilliant it is that now now we're not homophobic and sexist anymore and how bad it was that we were like really, really homophobic and sexist in the 50s. Um, and the 50s, or at some, usually it's the 50s, but sometimes it extends all the way into the late 80s as it does in this film. And the film is like on the side of the miners' strike and... Probably the most interesting scene is the one where he's, he goes to audition in London at the Royal Ballet and the people auditioning him say, oh, good luck with the strike. And, you know, it's true. Like people, you know, aren't, you know, London lovies in in the early 80s were mostly would have been quite sympathetic to what they would have seen as you know, the, the, the struggle of the miners cause, and they were all on the same side against Thatcher. But, I mean, there's this really weird, ten- there is this tension in the film between, well, what is it? Is it, I mean, is it a... F- because it does want to be a film which is sort of sympathetic to the miners. It doesn't want to just present the sort of patriarchal conservatism of Billy's family as this repressive prism from which he has to escape, which is what a slightly earlier version of this narrative would, would probably have done. So it, it's, but it, it ends up, it, therefore it does end up just sort of sentimentalizing the miners. And they're just this sort of, the minor strike is this very sentimental backdrop you know, it's almost like a Hovis advert for, for non-Brit. You know, for non-British listeners, the, the Hovis is a the most is a popular brand of sliced wholemeal bread, and for years and years, they had this advertising campaign, which was just these these literally sepia tinged films set in some unspecified. You know, moment of the past like the 30s or the late 19th century in a northern in what seemed to be a northern mill town so we still and they would have this sort of brass band music or clarinet music playing very slowly this slow sentimental sort of Vaughan Williams-ish soundtrack and we still think of the we still talk about how Hovis advert is like a is, is a synonym for kind of sentimentality about the history of about the industrial northern midlands you know um which is also completely depoliticized in its sentimentality. I were no more than knee-eye to a grasshopper when I ran off from home. I packed up my marbles, my catapults, and my obis sandwiches, and off I went. And so there is something a bit of that to, to Billy Elliot for me. But, you know, the way, but it does, you know, yeah, it does have all these tensions. And there's this tension between, well, is this a, a narrative about, a liberal narrative about the individual escaping the confines of their community? Or is it a kind of elegy to the lost world of the mining communities? Or is it a kind of act of mourning? Or is it, it does it, and I guess, it, I guess the film is interesting because it does, it does sort of know, the film does know in a way that, say, the full Monty very clearly, absolutely doesn't know that something has really been lost. You know, something that the, the, the moving into a world in which you can expect even working class people not to be homophobic and to let their children do their own thing and express themselves and become ballet dancers. The process by which we've got to that world is a process which has also involved like significant losses. You know, the losses of the of the the mining communities and their forms of solidarity, for example. So it sort of knows that. It sort of wants to express to the audience the fact that it knows that but i think it ultimately doesn't know how to reconcile those things in a way that later you know pride will absolutely 
find a way of telling a coherent narrative about all those things, which is politically much more radical and, and much more insightful, I think. So Maiden Dagenham is a 2010 British comedy drama, and it's about the Ford sewing machine strike of 1968 at the Ford plant in Dagenham, a town in Essex, which was actually brought into Greater London just, just before that. But um, it's a film about this real uh, life strike, which we talked about in the, in the, in the trip, uh, which we recorded earlier. And it's about equal pay for women. And there's also a stage musical of the film now as well. Um, so it's a real story about the women protesting sexual discrimination and demanding the equal pay for equal work. Um, I watched the trailer again. I mean, it is quite a saccharine, you know, uh, film. It's not. It's not. It's not in any way avant garde or anything like that. But 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 it. Yeah, I watched the trailer again, and it almost made me cry because of that sense that any of these films and we're going to talk about pride in a minute but but where where you know this is a real life situation where where women worked really hard to basically say we want to be paid the same for doing the same work which was you know not self-evident at the time and it really kind of brings to to mind the fact that every single time like these struggles are had like it's quite easy for for um subsequent generations without a political education to assume that, you know, all people would get the same pay for, for equal work. But that wasn't the case for, for women and we wouldn't have had the Equal Pay Act without it. So, you know, it's it's kind of a nice, fun film to, to, to watch, but, you know, it will make someone like me cry. So there we go. That's Made in Dagenham. Yeah, the woman, the, the woman who led this strike always insists that it, the, it's a mistake to say it was a strike over equal pay. It always seems a bit pedantic, but she says it wasn't. They wasn't the principle of equal. It was like they were all machinists, like making seat covers, and they wanted to be on a. They wanted to be on the same pay grade as some other group of workers who were mostly male. So I've never quite understood why it's not why that wasn't in the struggle for equal pay. But I feel like I've got to honour the fact that she always says that. She said that she came. She did a talk at UEL. We organised an event when they first released this film. No, no, um, at Dagenham, they were like you know there were pay differentials amongst skill levels, and uh, the 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 the, the uh, machinists, the the seamstress, the people who you know the women who primarily made the uh, did upholstery and stuff like that were class their work was classified as unskilled, but they were paid below the unskilled workers, and it was obviously um, quite highly skilled. So that was that was the provocation. Yeah. Put them together. Go on. It's Ford property, I believe. Oh, stop it. We have to take all these different pieces and work out how they go together. Because there ain't no template, is there? And we have to take them and sew them all freehand into the finished article. The same with the door trim and God knows what else. That is, that is not unskilled work, which is how you've regraded us. My sense when this woman did this talk was that it wasn't really about the issue of whether it was about equal pay or not. It was that she felt that the history of the strike had been subsumed into a sort of liberal feminist narrative and she wanted to be seen more in terms of a history of worker struggle. I mean, I was really excited when they made this film because, you know, I've been teaching at University of East London for years, which used to have a, a campus at in Dagenham, like really near the old floor plan. And it doesn't anymore, but also for years, I mean, sadly, I don't get to do this anymore. Like I used to show them a, docu- student, a documentary about the Dagenham 
strike about the about the actual event and they were always really interested in it it was always really sort of exciting and um and occasionally i'd had you know like students who were retirees who who'd kind of you knew who'd, who'd even been involved or, or known about it and that was years ago so i was i was really delighted when they made the film and i and i do think you know i i think we did don't we i mean I, i'm okay with that really sentimental popular films about strikes i just think that the presence of trade unions and working class struggle in mass culture is so weak these days at least in the english-speaking world that you know it's politically really useful to have tear you know tear-jerking films about people Completely. being in unions <laughs> i mean is that was that one of the reasons why is it the lack of this stuff of why it makes us cry i mean i should say that we have referred this to this in the last uh in in, in the last the full trip that we recorded and also you know i've been talking about it here like you know, like I, I, for one, and I know the guys as well. I mean, I don't, I don't know if if it's definitely the same case as, as me, but like I can't cry generally. So for all sorts of mental health and historical reasons, like I don't know how to cry. I find crying very, very difficult. But the one thing that always sets me off is any film or any visual media that has to do with solidarity or like you know, union workers, like, winning their rights or something. Like, I absolutely get, go into floods of tears. It's a really interesting thing. And I wonder if it's partly because of the fact that, like you just said, Jeremy, like, it isn't out there. Is it because it pulls on us emotionally? And we're about to talk about pride in a bit, but, like, on on something that is representative of the kind of world we want to see? I mean, I don't know. That's just an interesting thing in itself. Maybe we should do an episode on crying. I do cry at this stuff, yeah, like, loads. Like it really, I cry at a Ken Loach film or a John Sayles film, like nothing else, like literally like nothing else. I think Made in Dagenham and a bit like Billy Elliot and I'd probably put like Brassed Off as well, which is a film from 96, which isn't about the miners' strike, but it's about a mining town 10 years later and it's brass band and all that. They're all a little bit like um, union struggle can be represented because that's in the past. That's something that happened in the past, wasn't it? And it had some good effects, etc. But that's all in the past, sort of thing. Yeah. Which I, I is that true of the next film we're going to talk about, Pride, from twenty fourteen? Well, I think Pride. I mean, Pride is. Sent, I think no. I mean, I don't think it is. I think Pride. I think we've come out of the other side of this period. Mm. I mean, this is the high moment of Blairism. The high moment of Blairism, which ends in 2010. Indeed, the year Maiden Dagenham comes out. That's true. The high yeah. period of Blairism, and we haven't talked about. We could, alongside Brastoff, we could talk about one of my favourite films to talk about is The Full Monty, which is the Blairite film par excellence. You know, it is the film in which what happens, a bunch of unemployed industrial workers find out they're participating in the service economy and fully objectifying them and commodifying themselves in the process is fantastically fun and liberating and is something everybody should be doing and happy, be happy about doing. It is just extraordinary, a piece of propaganda for the specific Blairite sensibility, which has some, no question, progressive elements insofar as it questions tra you know, traditional forms of masculinity and it accepts women's equality in the workplace and relationships as, and, and their equality as sexual beings as as givens and as good things that is all good but the class politics of it are uh, the you know the historical politics of it are fucking horrific and yeah and but that and so and that comes out in 97 98 uh, and that high moment of blairism is full of this discourse which is you know is, nos is sort of nostalgic about 
features of progressive history and labour history, but wants to absolutely make them anodyne. It wants to remove the sense that there's any kind of sense of real sacrifice involved. Like it's just sort of fun. You're doing fun stuff, you know. A Made in Dagenham is sort of, you know, it's a girl's romp having a strike. Um, And yeah, it does want to do that. And I think Pride is, it does mark, it's one reason it's such an important film for us is because Pride comes out, we've come out the other side of that. It comes out in 2014. And when Pride was, I remember when they were talking about the, before Pride came out, I kept thinking, oh, it's just going to be Billy Elliot in South Wales, isn't it? It's just, you know, they're somehow, they're going to like, they're going to ruin it. And it is sentimental. And also it, it does, it does too much play into that narrative about, oh, isn't it brilliant how, how, how progressive we all are now? Because weren't they, weren't they old weren't they sort of conservative in the past because i've mentioned this before on the show i mentioned again again the working class history podcast series about coal miners lesbian and gay support the coal miners is brilliant and it's and partly one of the points it makes is that actually unlike unlike the way it's depicted in the film it is not the case that lesbians and gay supporters of coal miners this activist group of you know self-consciously queer people i self-identified gay lesbian people who wanted to actively support the minor strike. It's not the case that they turn up in this South Wales village and they have to overcome the homophobia of the miners because the homophobia of the miners had, according to the historical record, had largely already been successfully deconstructed by the influence of women's liberation within the community going back the the previous 10, 12 years. Um, But despite some of those little, despite some of those concessions to a sort of kind of liberal centrist progressivist um cliches ultimately it does make very clear the film is very self-consciously a film about struggle about the value of solidarity in and of itself and about solidarity as something meaning more than the aggregated experience of personal self-liberation of the individual you know participants which is what all those liberal films are basically about i think what do you think well i grew up in a a, a, in a town in the next valley across from where where um where pride is set during the pipe miners strike and there was a fair bit of homophobia around i'm not gonna deny that but um but like i love the film and i think it is different i think it is different because it's basically much more portrays it's, it's a much more of a political film than 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 the earlier ones i think do you know what i mean yeah yeah absolutely I, yeah. I, it can be it can be read as like an intersectional left film basically you know and that's you know something that was also there in salt of the assault of the earth back in you know that back in the 50s one of the first films we talked about i've had a lot of new experiences during the strike speaking in public standing on a picket line and now i'm in a, a gay bar well, if you don't like it, you can go home. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I do like it. <laughs> Beer's a bit expensive, mine. <laughs> what I'd really like to say is thank you. If you've supported LGSM, then thank you. Because what you've given us is more than money. It's friendship. When you're in a battle, against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you. But to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. So thank you. 
one thing I just want to throw in about that film is everybody always goes on about the stuff happening in the valleys in the film, but actually, but the film begins, you know, with a depiction of like the radical political gay left milieu of London in the early 80s. And it's fantastic as a depiction of that. It's fantastic as a depiction of that. And that is what makes it, one of the things that makes it you know, such a more radical film, because it isn't just about remembering a misty-eyed remembrance of the valleys. It's also about, you know, I mean, even if it's romanticising it, it's a fantastic thing to romanticise, like the radicalism of the GLC. And the fact that these guys, that the guys involved are communists, and our, on, our self-identified communist is not hidden at all. It's very, it's part of the mise-en-scene of that, the early scenes of the film. And that is brilliant. That is, that is, and you don't, you would never get anything like that. You'd, no one in Billy Elliot is reading like a Trotsky's newspaper. Talking about romanticising, I'm going to romanticise the name of the famous fundraiser, which I have a, a copy of the poster of, which is the Pits and Perverts fundraiser party at the Electric Ballroom in London, which I just think, wow, I mean, it was it seemed like it would have been such an amazing event to fundraise for the miners and, and, and what a hilarious name. I think there's also something there that the, the film says that's really important about like the crossover in different identities and attached cultures, because I, I feel like it's not like you know, the, the, the lesbian and gay support, the minors are, are, like you were saying, Jerry, it's a depiction of like the multiplicities of identities and realities that people, yeah, exactly. people live within. Yeah. No one finds themselves in this film. People become more than themselves in this film. They don't just, they don't find yes, themselves. Yeah. Everybody becomes more than themselves. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not just that, that, you know, there's not this kind of one dimensional, like, you know, the, the women, like I am a lesbian. It's like, I'm also a worker. I'm also a human, you know, I'm also someone inhibiting this like reality of, of the political milieu in the UK at this time. And it really kind of, between that and and the unfolding of how solidarity happens and how people are thinking on the level of like human beings it just cuts through all of the like the bu bullshit narrative that we're fed you know these days about like how human how humans make decisions and where self interest lies like i just think it's really good for that it like you know slaps a lot of that kind of discourse in the face and it's brilliant for that and it does just really make me cry like just even thinking about it now is putting me on edge yeah i mean 2014 you know it comes out future cultural historians are definitely going to look back and say well you know the 2017 general election results should not have been such a big surprise because this pride you know if you'd have told people 15 years earlier you were making this film like you wouldn't have got money to make it and it turned out to be you know, it was a commercial success the closing scene of this film de depicts basically the fact that the Labour Party took on the cause of gay rights, partly because of this massive vote by the National Union of Minors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, is that, is, is, do we, I don't, I don't know much about this. So I'm interested in your opinion. Like, do we think the Labour Party would have been so open and taking on like gay rights into its program if it well, wasn't it, for the National Union of Minors vote, which was because of the actions of you know, lesbian and gay support the minors? Uh, it, w it definitely would have happened, but it would have taken three or four years longer. It, not loads longer, I don't think even probably, maybe maybe not five years, but it would have taken longer. And it was hugely significant. And it was hugely significant also to, like, to gay people that the minors did that. that the, you know, that the NUM came round on the issue. That, you know, the, I mean, it also shows the, the minors, the NUM leading the, the Pride March. 
So yeah, it was. I mean, I, I mean, I just think to answer the question, there's no question it was historically significant. I once went up to Mike Jackson. He was the guy, um, the activist, the LGSM activist who wears wears the glasses and always portrayed in the film at a Navara party that we were all actually. He was there, and I'd never done it before, but I had to go up to him and say, "Look, mate, you're a working class hero." Just couldn't stop myself. Basically, he handled it very graciously. Yeah, I, 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 I was. Yeah, I, we were all at that party. Yeah, I, 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 I sh- shook his hand. I never do that. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Yeah. Look, ACFM listeners, if you haven't seen the 2014 British feature film Pride and listened to all of the episodes of the Working Class History podcast again about lesbian and gay support the minors. Uh, I just I forbid you to listen to any more ACFM until you've gone and consumed all that media. You are but you're barred. Go listen to go consume it. <laughs> go do it. And also the final film we're going to talk about today is another film. You really you've got to see this film. Everyone has got to see Nadia, you've got to go see this film. The Boots okay. Riley's 2018 film, Sorry to Bother You. I said, uh, the Godard film, I said, uh, Tuvabian uh, is probably um, the most um, avant-garde, formerly avant-garde film we're talking about today. Uh, I mean, maybe equally formerly avant-garde is this 2018 sort of surrealist, very slightly sci-fi surrealist comedy which partly centers around you know the question the, the whole question of the nature of solidarity and takes as one of its main plot features uh, industrial organizing labor organizing in a call center in a um, and it's you know it's a black film you know made by a black director filming fe- featuring mainly black actors and it is an absolute document of the revival of black radicalism, you know, after the emergence of BLM, which I think we're also seeing manifested in, in various other parts of the culture and is just historically one of the most significant things that's happening in terms of, you know, politics, certainly in the Anglosphere, but I think globally over the past few years. Um, just an extraordinary piece of work. And again, I mean, really one of my favourite films, like one of the best films that you know, I've ever seen, I think. So it's been categorised uh, as Afro-surrealist. So it's got some sort of surreal elements to it. And, you know, surreal in a way, it's like not in a, not surreal. What it means is like over, so more more than real, basically. Um, and, so the, and the surreal elements are to do with, well, all sorts of stuff, basically. <laughs> Equisapiens, I don't know if we want to, to do spoilers on this, but at certain points, no. there's sort of like horse, human, crossbreeds, etc., which takes this sort of quite, in some ways, realist, like a film based in realism, into this sort of surreal sort of um, stratosphere. Um, and you would put that alongside, like, TV series such as um, Atlanta, and so that Atlanta gets a that Lakeith Stansfield stars in as Cassius Green, Cassius Green, who is the star of Sorry to Bother You. He's also in um, Atlanta, which also has this like re- real rootedness in like real gritty sort of realism of life in Atlanta, and then further afield as the, as the series goes on. But like every now and then, it just goes to this completely surreal place. You know, there's definitely something in the. There's something something about that sort of like African American that black experience in the U.S. in a post BLM sort of era that is provoking this turn to it's not alienation techniques Brechtian alienation techniques such as tout va bien it's something else you know it's that um, uh, it's that it's a recourse to absurdity basically uh, you know some sort of like level of absurdity 
but which isn't sort of separated from realism. You know, it's seen as part of realism. I well, or it's experienced as part of realism in in a sort of way, sort of like that old world building. And perhaps it is because like that wave comes post the first wave of BLM, then post Trump's election, where it's obvious you're not going to get these like really raw, horrific experiences of, of police murders. You know, and the social movements that rise out of them, that you are not going to get an immediate resolution of those. This is going to be a long struggle. And, you know, you need some way to interpret these horrific experiences. And, like, where did surrealism come from? Surrealism emerges after the second, after the First World War as a reaction to these horrific experiences of the First World War. I don't know what it is, but there's something, there's something going on there, uh, which I think yeah, there is, makes yeah. surrealism a good place to, a good way to understand it. I'm Cassius Green, calling on behalf of StopAMudholeInYourAss.com. Sorry to bother you, but... We've gone on longer than we thought. We've gone on longer than we thought. We added several films we didn't think we'd talk about. That's a surprise! <laughs> All right, we've got to go, Tim, because... Um, Kieran and I have got a game in five minutes. Oh, for fuck's sake, we have. <laughs> I've got to get the dinner. All right. I know, I'm going to have to order pizza for the kids. It's just as... Okay, we haven't pressed that. stop that on record. Good. That was yeah. good fun, I No, I'm pressing stop now. <laughs>